As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Joining me is my co-host and a voice you have been familiar with by now, my bro, Christian Joseph. And today we have someone who I consider a mentor. When he's not on mainstream media, he's out there on the streets. He's someone that puts um, actions to the words. Welcome to finally, finally, finally to The Malcolm Effect, Ashok Kumar. Thanks, How are brother. you, bro? I'm good, man. Thanks for that intro. Wow, what a what an epic intro. Thanks, brother. <laughs> so good to finally have you, man. Here, so good to find out you. here on the street screaming. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Proselytizing. <laughs> You're spreading the good word of Marx. Yes, we love yeah. it. We love it. So we're gonna go straight into it. Christian, fire away. All right, cool. So my first question is about your book. Your book, Monopsony Capitalism, is a detailed economic analysis of the objective conditions that garment workers find themselves in. So could you uh, explain why you decided to focus on the garment industry and garment workers? Well, yeah, thanks, Christian, for that question. I mean, look, there are different, I think, sectors, obviously, in the world. Some are labor intensive, which means you have much more labor versus capital. Capital meaning, you know, the amount of machines that are in your in your uh, workplace in an industry. So that relationship is a central relationship of analyzing any specific sector, but even analyzing loads of attendant features of a sector. And so that's why Marx was kind of fixated on that when he was thinking about the question of uh, of kind of the tendency of the falling rate of profit, or we don't have to get into that in great detail, but also what he calls the rising composition or rising organic composition of capitalism, which is a central way of analyzing how capitalism functions and the direction of travel of capitalism. You know, it just based in the real economy, I mean, whatever we might think about various forms of what, what he calls the fictitious economy, in the real economy, under capitalism, we're really talking about the production of the commodity, and that production of the commodity is based on these kinds of internal dynamics. So one of the sectors that, you know, especially in modern debates, when we're talking about, you know, like automation and the obsolescence of, of work and all of these kinds of and AI, you know, these debates are sort of raging and have been raging for at least for the past few decades, but really in lots of ways for hundreds of years. And what you see in the garment sector, and I thought the garment sector was also a sector that I was involved with in terms of global solidarity and so it sort of was a natural progression of what I wanted to analyze. But it's uh, one of those sectors that really the, the sort of winds of time have not, is, is remained relatively insulated from those. It's very labor intensive, which means there's le very little investment in capital, like machinery. And the sewing machine, with very few updates, you know, it's become more automated, of course, hasn't really changed that dramatically since the 1850s, 1860s. And so what you see in the sector is that you've had falling workplace standards, a near obsolescence of, of trade unions, of the, you know, that even if they exist, they don't have any power, and the durability of the sweatshop. And so I guess at one level, I was trying to analyze why it's remained durable, but also one of the possibilities in such a sector that's so globalizable, that's so low value at the point of production, that's so low technology, that's what Gary Jeremy calls buyer driven, which means the global supply chain. 
buyers like retailers and brands are the ones who are the determinants of the supply chain and, and the sector itself. How that sector has, what are the possibilities of workers to organize effectively within it? Because historically, and this is what I saw from my organizing around global solidarity, is that you know, workers, like anywhere, agitate, organize. This is the history of Certainly, the history of capitalism, but because the history of of societies of you know oppressed people organizing themselves. But in the in the factory conditions, consistently we find no matter what the conditions, if you push workers to a point, they will self organize and withdraw their labor power or do other things like smash smash um, machinery, etc. And you see this consistently. Once you saw the sort of globalizing capital, you know, from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, after the crisis in the 70s. You really did see workers in different contexts organizing and consistently what capital was able to do. And by capital, I don't mean machinery now. I mean capital at the transnational level. So brands and retailers, et cetera, that are outsourcing that production were able to just cut and run. They go to the next, next place. So that's what they call the global race to the bottom. So considering these conditions, how can workers effectively organize? I mean, to quote Marx, the point of, well, he said the philosopher, but I'd, I'd say the point of left-wing people doing research isn't simply to do research, but it's to see how that research or how that analysis can help change the world without sounding too naff and liberal. But it's that the idea is, okay, I want to analyze capitalism, but not just to analyze capitalism to analyze capitalism, but analyze capitalism to see the most efficacious mechanisms that workers can self-organize and dismantle it. And so that was the kind of political impetus behind the, and I spent many years, about seven years, traveling to many different contexts and looking at this, the most exploitative, the most gendered sector in the world and, and looking at how they can organize effectively. And so what the conclusions that I was able to draw was that, you know, in, in the 20th century, in the advanced capitalist world, so the US and Europe, the Western Europe, workers in the garment sector were able to organize effectively and were able to pressure capital, their employers, to the point that in 1948, a heavily gendered sector, women made up 70-80% of the sector, especially the shop floor, were able to make as much as auto workers in 1948 in the US. And there's, it's like, that's incredible. But how is that possible? And that's because of a series of things they did. And that fundamentally, that becomes, that is dismantled once you have globalization. And that doesn't happen in the auto sector. And what I conclude is basically that, you know, that there's a, that it's based on this concept of monopsony. Monopsony is basically where you have many sellers and few buyers. So it's a buyer's market. It's an asymmetrical relationship. And as globalization expands the numbers of potential sellers, and as the barriers to entry is low, so you know, if you want to open up an auto factory, it might cost you 100 million pounds. If, you want to, if you're, you know, I don't know, a capitalist in Cambodia or India, and you want to open up an aeronautics plant, it might cost you a billion pounds. But if you want to open up someplace in the outskirts of a city, with 3,000 sewing machines, custom cutting boards, and paying workers poverty wages, it'll cost you less than a million pounds, and you could be outsourcing to like Zara or whatever very easily. So the number of potential capitalists, every time you expand and liberalize borders for capital to flow, expands. So as it expands, that asymmetrical relationship between buyer and seller becomes greater and greater. It's like a bottleneck. You have more and more people competing for fewer and fewer buyers. And that knock-on effect means that the level of surpluses that are generated at the point of production is much less, which means that workers can't negotiate that much. You know, if, if an employer is making very little, you can't, and, there's, and your workplace is easily replaceable, your disruptive power falls alongside that. So what you see is that, like, in these sectors, if they're competing relentlessly for 
the business. And they're putting that downward pressure on workers. So workers, it's not like the 1960s in May 68 in Paris where they'd be like, demand the impossible. Workers can't demand the impossible. They can demand, you know, they can demand from what's available, you know, and if there's very little available, they can demand very little. And if they're very replaceable, they can demand very little. And the, the, the possibility of their jobs being lost because the, the retailer or the brand goes somewhere else is an eg- existential threat, not only to their employer, but to their employees. So anyways, that's over. But what basically because of this, what Marx describes as a kind of underlying law of motion within capitalism, the volume one capital, you have this sort of centralization because the number, the amount, because profit is maximizing profit is the underlying logic of capitalism. These brands and retailers demand less and less, demand you know, lower and lower prices for a pant or shoe or a tie or whatever. And as that happens, fewer and fewer suppliers are able to compete. And as fewer and fewer suppliers are able to compete, that's when you start seeing weaker capitals go out of business, stronger capitals consolidate and gobble up their business and increase their market share. So over time, what becomes a, a very asymmetrical relationship because of this high degree of monopsony, over time, because of this underlying logic in capitalism, that becomes consolidated and monopsony power starts decreasing. And as that happens, those workplaces become less distru- like replaceable by the, these major brands and retailers, which means they're able to capture more vo- that value at the point of production. These suppliers invest that into labor-saving technology, etc. And so now you're that capitalist in Cambodia and in India, and it might cost you two million or three million pounds to, in- to start a factory because there's more technology, there's more investment at the point of production, etc. So what that does is it means the disruptive power of those employers, of those firms at the point of production in the global south starts increasing vis-a-vis buyers because the monopsony power is falling. And as that happens, the ab- ability to, for workers to make effective disruptions at the point of production increases. And as that happens, they're able to squeeze that value that's accumulated at the point of production a little bit more, that share of value workers are able to, to, to actually capture. So... It's a kind of combination of, of the material conditions and the subjective agency. That is the history of capitalism. And certainly that's the case with the garment sector. So I really wanted to study it not only because of the millions and millions of workers around the world that, or, that are potential, potentially organ, are a revolutionary class that are able to organize. It's also because it tells us something about capitalism because the garment sector and the footwear sector are what you call starter sectors. They're the first to come and the first to go in the uh, production process. So there's a kind of canary in the coal mine of where capitalism is going. It, it tells us where what's happening. So if we are able to see effective organizing in this sector, it is a, mecha- it is a mechanism to trigger larger changes, I think, within, within the society we live in. Yeah, thank you very much for that, that thorough summary of the book. And actually, as you're explaining, you know, one of the, I think one of the figures in the book that like stands out to me the most is like, uh, very close to the beginning, you have that uh, pie chart that shows the uh, sourcing price and the uh, retail price of a men's T-shirt. And then you see the share of profits for like a $15 T-shirt and garment manufacturer profits only make, uh, you know, only uh, make up 13.3 percent, uh, kind of speaking to that, that uh, downward pressure you were talking about earlier. But I do. And, and I, this kind of leads into my second question about uh, about the book. Because it gets into global value chains and uh, global commodity chains. So you know, it's uh, within your book. It's it's very clear that Marxism is central to your analytical methodology. However, in chapter one, you also write that critical to understanding the power of workers within the garment stru- sector is to make sense of GVCs, global value chains, the genealogy of which began with the framework of 
global commodity chain theory. Uh, and then in the subsequent sentence, you go on to explain that term commodity chain was first coined in the 70s. So how important is it to adjust theory to be able to account for particularities of our current context, as you've done here with, you know, this commodity chain stuff? And then further, how do you actually do that type of work? Yeah, okay, great question again. So look, you know, the commodity chain framework was initially the etymology of it, of course, is like you said, it comes from Hopkins and Wallerstein. Emmanuel Wallerstein, of course, very important figure in, you know, the founder of world systems theory. <clears throat> and I'm trying to analyze really, along with other people like Beverly Silver, Arigi, Samir Amin, of course, trying to analyze capitalism really from the perspective of the global south. Now, Marxists have historically have a, have a kind of funny relationship with world systems theory. You know, lots, I'm very sympathetic to world systems theory. But, and, but I think that when we think about commodity change framework, change, chain framework, what they initiated at that point was a certain anal analysis of commodity dependency theory. What is the relationship between these kind of low organic composition of capital states where you have very, you know, it's quite under, un, underdeveloped, formerly colonized contexts and the relationship with the global, global, global north. And it was a much more, their analysis was like, this is a very much more parasitic relationship, which I certainly agree with. It's not like they can't change that. And I, I guess I'll get to that in a minute. But the progression of that was then in the early 90s, you had people like Gary Jarefy and others came from a kind of different context. They were analyzing it, not necessarily, they weren't necessarily hyper-capitalists, but they were definitely analyzing it not in the same way Wallerstein and Hopkins were looking at it. They weren't looking at it from a place of like trying to upend it. And I do have a lot of respect for Gary Jarefy, but for his academic work, but it, it came much more from like a kind of business angle, I would say. But then Gary Jarefy creates this binary in which he's like, okay, there's buyer-driven supply chains, which are labor-intensive, like garments and footwear and toys and furniture, et cetera. And then you have producer-driven. So that's aeronautics, electronics. Electronics comes in a spectrum. You have you know, light electronics versus heavy electronics. And then you have like automobiles, which are producer-driven, where the, the kind of the shot callers of the supply chain are the producers. You know? So the people that have the power are in some car dealership somewhere. It's the car owners that own the manufacturing. It's very different from like brands, like you, know, you walk into a shop, uh, you know, like into a, a shop to buy a pair of Nikes and Nike doesn't own anything All, alongside the entire supply chain from like the cotton field to the retail rack. They don't own anything other than the branding. And they're able to accumulate 80, 90% of the profits um, and extract that quite literally from the global South, right? So it's like this parasitic relationship was very important and it is foundational. It's sort of based out of like, it is based on world system series that grew out of, I think, dependency theory. Anyways, the, the analysis of that is helpful insofar as it's, trying to look at the kind of very real material changing composition of capital and how that is reflected, how we can take that analytical lens and analyze the possibilities of workers' bargaining power. And why it's helpful, I think, is that under, under classical Marxist analysis of capitalism, they deal with the, they're really good at state theory, typically Marxists. They do state theory. They're really good at like obviously thinking about imperialism and the relationships of power and geopolitics. And they have been not as strong, I think, of analyzing the specific dynamics of like supply chains and what are the conditions that like change and why they change and under what frameworks they change. And I think for me, it was quite helpful to say, okay, here's a framework that is was largely evolved into a, an analysis of like analysis of like you know businesses and risk management and like transaction costs and stuff like that to one that we can then utilize to 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 analyze the possibilities of workers to organize effectively you know it's like 
And the, the, the frameworks that they had, which is like, you know, let's say at two ends of it, you, the, the kind of archetypal produce, producer-driven supply chain is like automobiles. And the archetypal, I mean, uh, archetypal buyer-driven supply chain is Garmin. And they're at two ends of the spectrum where Garmin workers have almost no power and auto workers universally have significantly more power. And typically people are very reductive about that. They'll be like, oh, it's because this is gendered and this is women and this is men's work and da 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 Absolutely, like gender plays the role, role lots of times, both ideologically insofar as like we live in a society where it becomes acceptable to pay women less, but also that it's about the reserve army of labor. Like if you if women can't do other forms of labor and because of the changing composition of capital, it's simply not the case that you can have a social reproducer of a woman at home taking care of children and cleaning the house and feeding the children, feeding the husband and the man working out. That's just not even feasible in 95% of the, of the world, at least in the industrialized world. Industrialized insofar as like you go to cities in the global south, it's not conceivable. But because they're forced into labor, you have these massive reserve armies of labor for the garment sector, which is then exploited by the capitalists, because then they, that reduces their disruptive power. Because if they can just replace any number of workers with a, a, a whole number of women that can't do any other form of labor, that's, of course, deeply gendered and deeply, you know, it's exploited by the capitalists to increase their profits. But that's sort of, I think, part of the story. But it's like, it's a chicken or egg question. It's like, is it the case that these sectors are so exploitative that they're able to add on to that level of exploitation by hiring women? Or is it the case that, like, that the foundations are you have women in it and that's somehow the, the, the subject that substructures the entire rate of exploitation. I mean, with the former, I actually think that in lots of ways, it's a highly exploited sector for lots of dynamics within capitalism. And then women are a perfect role to play in that. And also it's seen as like, you can say it's de-skilled. You can say, oh, it's not a skill. This idea of skill is mad to me because they have these fairly primitive machinery and they're making clothes out of that and different clothes every week because of fast fashion and ephemeral fashion trends and seasonality versus someone who work in, the car, in a highly automated car factory, a man typically, pressing a button potentially all day. And that's considered skilled. And the women's work in the garment sector is considered unskilled, which is like just is a reflection of how deeply fucked up our system is where people actually believe that. And that's been believed throughout the 20th century, which is it defies reality. But anyways... The, um, the point is that in the garment sector, you have high exploitation, is buyer-driven. And in the, in, the, in the auto sector, it's producer-driven, and it's less exploitation insofar as workers are getting paid more, even if the rate of exploitation is higher because the profits are higher and the surplus value is higher. Anyways, that's a sideshow. But the point is that like because those differences, and you're like, okay, let's analyze why this is the case. And if you analyze it, you're able to realize that as the garment sector is moving in the spectrum closer to the producer-driven. Now, of course, not as close as the producer-driven because they're able to increase profits. Like you gave the example, obviously, of the, the, the fact that the garment owners are making you know, 12 13% potentially. That's a graph from 20, 30 years ago. Now, in certain parts of the sector, certain parts of the sector, so like more valorizable parts of the sector, so like denim or shoes or men's undergarments, which aren't tied down to the same issues of like seasonality and ephemeral fashion trends. So they're able to become more standardized. And if you can become more standardized, you can become more automated. I mean, this is what obviously Adam Smith writes this first in Wealth of Nations, where he's like talking about the pin factory. It's the standardization is the stepping stone to uh, mechanization and automation. Now, if you have these fast fashion trends that are changing every week, you cannot have automation because you can't have standardization. So, um, but you can in certain parts of the sector. So, in denim, for example, it's basically the, the raw materials itself is fairly standardized. Or, or men's undergarments, which haven't changed 
according to season or fashion trends or like shoes for that matter, which will produce the same shoe for multiple years, sometimes for decades. If you take the like the, you know, the um, Nike Max, for example, from the 90s or whatever. So Air Max. So the thing is that if you just as, as examples, those become standardized and because they become standardized, the amount once those factory owners or factories in the global south are able to escape the orbit of low value and accumulate a little value and invest that into labor-saving technology or R&D, et cetera, they're able to edge out the other people in the market. And once they're able to do that, they're able to raise the barriers to entry. And so it's the, the framework is very helpful in analyzing the specificity of different sectors in a way that like, I'm not saying all Marxists, there's lots of Marxists have analyzed global value chains. Um, of course, um, and you know, it's been very helpful and there's been robust analysis of it. But the foundational analysis of that sort of bifurcation between buyer and supplier, or producer rather, is an incredibly helpful framework to analyzing contemporary capital. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I don't, I'm sorry, Christian, I, I forget the second question that you were asking. I mean, it was just, it was more so like, what is the, the relevance of, of kind of updating this theory with uh, these n new things that have been coined, such as GVC and GCC, but also, you know, how do you, how do you do that work? And I think that was kind of implicitly found in your answer because you, well, you had well, obviously, I, I didn't. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I would say how you do the work is this. I think it's, it's a combination. So the actual book involved being in, analyzing different struggles in different places. And I end the book with George Lukash's History and Class Consciousness. In History and Class Consciousness, he, Lukash says that uh, it's only in the moments of crisis, and this is a foundation, and I'm not doing a, a kind of transition to talking about my next book project, but I, I'm just saying that this is, basically he's saying it's only in the moment of crisis that we can analyze capitalism in its totality. And what he means by that is, I think a few things, but it was that I wouldn't call strikes necessarily a crisis in capitalism, but they're moments of rupture, right? And so I look at strikes and work, workplace disruption and, and those kinds of things in various different contexts to see how capital responds, either the domestic capitalists or the transnational bourgeoisie, and how they're able through that reaction, I'm, I'm able to analyze capitalism relationally. And through that relational analysis, we can analyze capitalism in some ways, at least industrial capitalism, in its totality. So it's like, for example, I look at a, a, a shoe manufacturer in China. It's a Taiwanese shoe manufacturer called Hu Yen. And Hu Yen is, was one of hundreds of shoe manufacturers decades ago. And they were able to somehow edge out, I mean, we know how, but edge out some of the competitors. And you know, now one in five shoe, casual and sports shoots in the world are produced at a Hu Yen facility. And that's enormous. And they were able to Basically, because of that, they were investing in labor-saving technology, et cetera. In 2014, you saw the largest strike of a private sector employer in Chinese history. And, and then copycat, six months later, the same employer subsidiary in Vietnam, largest strike in Vietnamese history of a private sector employer, again, at a Hu Yen facility. What does that tell us? Well, the, the strike itself doesn't tell us that much. Of course, workers strike everywhere and workers struggle everywhere. But it's the reaction of the transnational capitalists, which is, not the standard one of cutting and running and going to the next supplier. Because of course, the, you know, if you're doing liabilities and risk management, immediately you're like, okay, this is a high liability. It's costing us money. We'll just go to the next supplier. They go away for a bit and they come directly back to the Hu Yen. Hu Yen is able to absorb the strike, make losses, make a few concessions at tens of millions of dollars. And workers ultimately lost their demands in China and won their demands in Vietnam. But 
which is around pension funds and et cetera, but pension uh, support. But what it tells us most illustratively is that capital doesn't have alternatives, or at least many alternatives that aren't, that are profitable. So what it tells us historically is that companies like Huyen were desperate for the employee, uh, for the contracts of, of companies like Nike and Adidas, et cetera. But now Huyen needs Nike almost as much as Nike needs Huyen. And that fundamental change in the relationship between, you know, sort of the supplier and the buyer illustrates to us the possibilities of workers to make those demands because they're increasing their disruptive power. So it's not just a kind of analytical framework of like, that's abstracted from the very material conditions of the, re like the real existing working class. It's analyzing the working class. And I do an analysis of India. The book starts, of, co of course, in Bangladesh, but um, also in Vietnam. And then Honduras was another chapter. And then I do archival work in the U.S. So I'm trying to trace the garment sector from its very roots and the ILGWU's ability to make those negotiations based on monopsony. And so it's fundamentally this concept of the relationship between buyers and suppliers I'm kind of tracing throughout the 20th century and saying, actually, that relationship is the underlying determinant of what workers can demand, how they can demand it, and how, can, how they make those gains. And so it was based on a series of kind of macro analysis, but also very micro analysis of like day-to-day -day interviews. I, mean, I, was, I lived, I return, if the book starts off really in, in Damnagara, which is a rural town, I was a translator there 10 years ago at this factory struggle, and it's, there's a bunch of people that come in to, to investigate, people have been beat up. Husbands have beat up. They've got all these goons. There was a union fight in this dusty little town outside of, you know, uh, outside of Bangalore. And based on that, I was able to sort of say, well, th there, is, there does seem to be the foundational idea that there's this asymmetrical relationship between buyers and suppliers. I saw through this investigation, which was multi-day and, uh, you know, like seeing it, you know, the actual relationship between Philip Danhausen, which was the largest clothing manufacturer they own, like Tommy Hilfiger, et cetera, and... Arvind, which is the third largest denim manufacturer executives, it was completely asymmetrical in the other direction. It was that the PBH person was like, Philip Van Housen person was like cowering next to the guy who was the vice, vice president of Arvind. And I'm like, wait, this is a bit weird, but I thought maybe it was some interpersonal thing. And then on the way home, I was talking to one of the, the investigators they brought up, brought down from North India who didn't speak the language. And I was like, it was very weird, that relationship. He's like, look, I'm seeing that increasingly. And I was like, oh, okay. And so then when I investigate further, I'm like, okay, so this is, this dynamic seems to be changing. Mm -hmm. No, it was interesting um, that you were talking about, you know, the importance of analyzing capitalism through crises, because I think about, uh, you know, some of David Harvey's work and read a book a while ago of his, The Enigma of Capital, and that one focuses on, on analyzing um, uh, the crises of capitalism. But uh, I wanted to talk about geography because geography is very relevant in your work here and i wanted you to kind of expand on how geography uh, plays a role in capital accumulation yeah i think it's a central idea often people are confused by this and they're like well i'm trained as a geographer technically i did my phd in geography and i think i, I, I think of these things really within geographic terms like you said david harvey you know his famous line capitalism never solves its crisis, it simply moves it around geographically. It's very helpful insofar as we see, even look at like, for example, Beverly Silver's work, Forces of Labor. It's, it's all about the story of how capital is able to like change space, manipulate space, use and exploit space to maximize its profit and undermine, which contingent to that is, or like central to that is undermining the ability of workers to make any gains at the workplace. So 
you know, geography is central insofar as the analytical framework, really why I've traced it 100 years is this. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, yes, there's two frameworks. You have this monopsony that exists at the, at the material level, the material relations of capital. And it's, you know, this is what, you know, Marx and German ideology calls objective relations. But then, then you have the subjective agency, what workers do with those materialities. And so it's like, you know, and uh, there's people like Eric Olin Wright and based on the work of Caroni, which describe different structural bargaining power that workers have. And so you, he frames it into two different kinds. You have positional power that's based on how, where workers are positioned within capitalism. So for example, tube workers have much more bargaining power than like some guy who works at a cookie shop in London because the cookie shop workers go on strike. There's limits to how much you can demand. Whereas the tube workers go on strike, it shuts down the city. It costs the city millions upon millions. Same with like dock workers. So this is just a classic example. Whereas like, if you're like, I don't know, a, you're like a crane operator at a dock, you know, or a port, you have much more bargaining power than if you were a, you know, some crane operator in some podunk village Amazon facility. You know what I mean? Like, it's because that that's, those are the critical choke points of the economy. Anyways, so they're able to analyze the structural power of, of workers. Structural power is like the, 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 the power that you have implicit to where you are, either in the market or either in the supply chain. And that's a geographic point to be made, even though Eric Lundreich is a sociologist. But in the analysis, it's saying, I'm arguing that you have two forms of, I, I would say, spatial disruptive power, spatial power, right? And spatial power is like, you know, you have, at the, in the 20th century, the reason why women in the garment sector in the ILGW in 1948 were making as much as auto workers is because they had limits on the state. So the, that limited monopsony because, you know, they couldn't open up a factory somewhere outside of the state. So workers could outrun capitalism. So they had organizers basically traveling everywhere, organizing workers. And the limits, the geographic limits on capital meant that workers had more bargaining power. Those limits go away once you have the crisis of the 1970s. 1973, you have a crisis, you know, I would say the best work on this is by Brenner. But that crisis is a structural crisis, a crisis of overaccumulation. And that crisis is so structural that it triggers a fundamental recalibration of capitalism to the point that all of these industrial capital, all this industrial capital has to move to the global south. And it does move to the global south because, you know, you have this crisis of profitability. And as that happens, all of a sudden, the possibilities for these factories start expanding outward. So then you can't. The ILGW, this is international law, international lady garment workers union, a sort of militant union in primarily based in New York, but isn't able to outrun it. And so you have falling wages, obviously, as those wages are falling, because again, capital is able to manip manipulate capital, the, the spatial, the, the spatial power that workers have plummets. But what I'm arguing is that over time, because of the fundamental underlying logics of capitalism that moves us towards centralization and consolidation, what it means is that you move towards a market. We move from like state spatial inflexibility to a market spatial inflexibility. In so far as once capital is invested in enormous amount, individual capitalists into labor sector saving technology, into vertical integration, into horizontal integrations, into networks, entire cities that are built on a single industry. For example, like there's an entire city that just makes socks in China. You cannot just cut and run from that because the, the capacity and the economies of scale not through state regulation, but simply because of the underlying logic of capital, this sort of market spatial inflexibility, that spatial inflexibility, that geographic limit on capital. And I think the most important text from Harvey on this was really his book from the 70s called Limits of Capital, 
which Enigma of Capital and all these other books are kind of kind of built upon or is kind of distillations of. Basically, once that happened, once you have those limits on capital, limits on the spatial possibilities of capital, all of a sudden workers are able to exploit that. And so that is a fundamental explanation, not just of like analyzing the movements and the way that capitalism kind of shapes the lived environment, the landscape, but how workers are able to what Andy Herod create labor fixes. Andy Herod, a brilliant geographer, takes the idea of, of Harvey's spatial fix. What The spatial fix is basically that capitalism is dealing with a crisis and that crisis, the, you know, with the quote, capitalism never solves its crisis, simply moves around geographically, is a spatial fix. It's saying, we're, we have this crisis and we're going to use space and geography to kind of upend that crisis. Basically, he's like, there are labor fixes and those labor fixes are mechanisms for labor to exploit different forms of of geographic kind of compositions of capital. Do you think there's a um, chicken or the egg type of situation when we talk about using race as a technology of exploitation with regards to, uh, you know, these spatial fixes, saying that we pursue these certain uh, spatial fixes to deal with or in order to seek profit and to uh, further exploitation and these spatial fixes or these geographies often involve those who who are of you know who who are racialized subjects if that makes sense of the question so i christian are you asking me that if sometimes capital uses spatial fixes but also capital sometimes uses racial fixes yeah yeah and sometimes those i mean there may be a chicken or egg situation in which what is what precludes the either well, look, I think, okay, so basically this is the book I'm working on now and probably will be working on for the best part of a decade. Exclusive. Dropping it. <laughs> dropping it here. To watch the TV. I, uh, basically, I think that, I think we need a sort of, I think a high, helpful heuristic is, is to kind of disarticulate the question of a spatial fix from a, let's say, a racial fix. Mm-hmm. Insofar as one of the few things that we have to accept, I think, if we're thinking about racial fixes, isn't this idea of like co-constitutivity, it's co-constitutivity, that this thing that people are like, oh, they're co-constitutive. I'm like, yeah, I suppose that's, that's maybe the case. But I think that what's helpful is to try and think about it as that race in lots of ways is epiphenomenal to capital and crisis. And if we treat it as that, just for the sake of analyzing capitalism and, you know, not to be too vulgar and economistic about it, but if you look at like the German ideology, people might argue that it's more dialectical than this. I think it's pretty clear that like Marx is, is talking about the superstructure quite literally growing out of the base in a not in a linear fashion. It's of course dialectical, but in a way that is like one is clearly coming first and the other is coming second, right? And so if you look at the crisis of the 1970s, for example, it, you know, I would I basically take different forms of crisis. So, you know, some crises are crises of overaccumulation, which are structural crises. Other crises can be broadly like kind of credit debt crisis, which are you know, like they're in some ways can be parts of larger, more structural crises, or they could be kind of superficial crises. And so, and then you have labor crises, for example. So these crises, labor shortage, etc. So each of these crises re- kind of require a kind of attendant form, and I'm arguing this attendant form of the production of difference. I, I don't really want to necessarily get into the race swamp. I think it's like a bit difficult because once you start talking about race, there's all these kind of, I think, race people who like make their money by talking about race and writing about race and literally live and almost like 
they have a unfortunately a kind of almost vested interest in in like re further reifying race because they're the tiny sliver of that include myself in this tiny sliver of black and brown people that actually on balance might even profit from race when 99.9 percent .9 of black and brown people around the world suffer under the existence of race but there's very there's a lot of defensiveness around it does this is this defined as race or is that defined as race i'm less interested in that i think about it as like a racialization as a process so I would think of like, what is its relationship to the labor market, for example, is a kind of interesting question to me. So like, for example, when, when labor is kind of ghosted, is, opens up in China, China need, creates these environments in which you have high, high investment, sort of part of the Pearl River Delta region, like, like Guangzhou or Shenzhen or whatever. And in those areas, you have enormous amount of investment by the state to optimize the conditions of capitalist accumulation and investment of manufacturing. And in those places, this system called hukou, the hukou system is one in which you have a separation between social reproduction and production, material production, right? And historically, you would, cities were, had to like both worry about material production and social reproduction. Oh, who's going to care for children? Like, you know what I mean? Like a, a mother staying at home, taking care of children in lots of ways is, and not working, that is unprofitable for capital, right? So it's like, um, and then they have to pay workers more in order to take care of those other members, et cetera. Whereas if you're able to create a system in which the regions, and so the hukou system means that if you're a, a worker who comes from like a province in mainland China and you move to the Pearl River Delta region, none of the, the benefits of social reproduction, so like the state caring for this or that, can be allocated to you. You're seen as a migrant worker. And because you're seen as a migrant worker, internal migrant, even though you're from the same state, the rate of exploitation is very high. The state, and some people have argued, Eli Friedman and others have argued this, that central, and even Pangaya argues this, that the central component to the buildup of these cities, these vast and vertical cities in the in such a, in, in the fastest in the history of the world, is precisely because they could separate so, the cost of social reproduction from the profits of material production, right? And so that is a form of racialization. Now, someone might argue, wow, they're not a race. Yeah, of course. I don't know about phenotypes and all of the specificity around that. But it is the, the mechanism is very similar to how black people in America were ghettoized as a black reserve army of labor. Now, it's, there's a very different, different they, they still have access to benefits, of course, in China. But the role is similar. There's similarities there, right? And so it's interesting to me to think about the way that difference rather than race is exploited, produced, recalibrated, recomposed in order to increase profits and to divide the working class. And so if you look at, for example, you know, if you look at the sort of long durée of the American racialization of black people in America versus the racialization of indigenous people. Now I'm thinking of like Patrick Wolf's ex exceptional text, Trace of History. He makes this distinction between the way that black people are racialized, which is a one drop rule and where each additional black child that's born under slavery is an additional profiting commodity for the owners of capital, the proprietors of capital, the owner of slaves. So it's almost like, it's profitable to have more black people potentially in the, in the American context, which kind of, you know, I think a lot of, I, I don't want to get into the Afro-pessimism debate, but why that lots of Afro-pessimism's arguments kind of deranged because it's, it, it doesn't even make any sense precisely because what was genocidal, and obviously this isn't to take away from the, the um, horrific treatment of black people in America, it's just different insofar as indigenous people were genocided, of course, because they were either bred out of existence, indigenous people in America or Australia and other contexts, the settler colonial context, precisely because you're trying to take their land. Whereas if you're trying to exploit someone's labor, 
you don't mind if there's you actually want a profit you want more and more black people to be born because you can the rate of exploitation is so high i mean under slavery the rate of exploitation was a hundred percent but after capitalism it is still much higher you can get away with exploiting black labor far more than you can get away with exploiting white labor so they were the black reserve army of labor once they're pushed into the north in 1914-1915 they're pushed into the north precisely because there's a crisis labor crisis in the u.s that labor crisis means it's a breakout of world war one the, the migration from eastern europe or western europe rather collapses they need munitions plants etc they need to replace white labor that are gone and fought in world war one all of a sudden, you have former sharecroppers, et cetera, being kind of enticed and pushed and et cetera into global north cities, or rather northern cities. And even like a great kind of the OJ documentary actually really details this and how it happens in a very good way, actually, the first half in L.A. So it's like and they're ghettoized there and cities recompose precisely to ghettoize this population. And so all of a sudden from 1914-15 and then there's another spike after 1929 and the depression then. And up until 1973, that reserve arm, that black reserve army of labor means that the cities are completely seen as dark and dangerous places. Why? Because you needed black people to, to be exploited at the workplace, but the white laborers that worked alongside them to see them as less than human. So they never organize with them. Right. How do you do that? You do that at the point of social reproduction. You keep black labor separate and subordinated and subjugated as a subproletariat in the ghetto. And you're constantly it's an existential threat of white laborers who are working as full-time employees to be like, you will be replaced by black labor. So all of a sudden, it's not only the case that they're exploiting black labor, they're able to kind of fuel racial animus and racism precisely for those very material reasons, right? So then what happens in night, you have the civil rights movement and there's gains, three, three primary gains that are made through the civil rights movement between 1952 broadly to the early 70s. You have the civil rights, black civil rights movement, voting rights act, and is a central part of it. But the Fair Housing Act of 1968, that's one, really, is the kind of most important things in lots of ways, was they wanted to kind of end ghettoization. Because ending in, in, in ending ghettoization would have been what Andre Gores calls a non-reformist reform, a way of integrating black and white labor at the point of social reproduction, which is a radical act, right? But just like Marx writes in Volume 1, Chapter 10, The Fight for the Working Day, how once the workers have won the fight for the working day, Capital is able to re recuperate that. They recuperate that through this idea of relative surplus value. Just like that, once none of the Fair Housing Act is, is really introduced until 1973. 1973, all of a sudden you have the crisis of capitalism. It is a structural crisis, one that is, you know, is 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 so structural to capitalism because it's a it's a crisis of overaccumulation that fundamentally recalibrates the productive forces of capitalism which then requires a fundamental recalibration of social relations. So all of a sudden, it's no longer that black people are this, it's no longer profitable necessarily or necessary because industrial capitalism is now kind of moved to the global south. And you have the, all of a sudden this reserve army of labor, this black reserve army of labor becomes a redundant surplus. So it's not a coincidence that between 1973 and 2015, you have a six fold increase in the prison population in America. It, it's not a coincidence that across the advanced capitalist world, all of a sudden, cities go from being dark and dangerous places to being dark, dangerous, and desirable places. It's not a coincidence that all of a sudden, like Hunger Games, all of a sudden it was like, oh, we are going to have a, affirmative action, for example, which again, I'm, I'm broadly in support of affirmative action, but it wasn't even a demand of the most conservative of the civil rights movement, like the NAACP or the Urban League 
weren't making this a demand because there was this idea within the civil rights movement, which was quite radical if you compare it in lots of ways to BLM, that, that these class demands affected both the middle class black people of the, of, of the South and the working class South, uh, black people of the South. So that, that and, you know, I think Adolf Reed's written about this quite a bit, but that consolidation of that demand made those demands so much more radical, right? Insofar as like it was able to consolidate the black populations broadly. Of course, there were diver- there's a kind of diverse- diversity of demands even then, but like the SLC was making far more reformist demands than let's say SNCC or the Black Panther Party, of course. But by 1973, it's no longer a radical demand to say, oh, we want to like empty out the ghetto. Emptying out the ghetto becomes profitable. It's what Harvey calls capitalism under crisis, looking for seeking new terrains of profitability. And that new terrain of profitability across the advanced capitalist world was, okay, we want to transfer billions of pounds of land value because now it's no longer profitable to have these workers on this land. The land on, upon which they sit, is we can make more profitable. They make those places desirable. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's no longer a threat to, to start showing images of like black and white integrated couples. It's no longer a threat to have someone like Obama or others go through university and become these people that are basically mediating the black population that then could be used as a cudgel against black people who aren't being pro- successful. To start treating black people as human isn't necessarily human in this kind of superficial way, isn't necessarily underlying the productive forces because now the productive forces have fundamentally changed. So that phenomena of gentrification and those things that we think are desirable don't happen in a vacuum. They're what Marx and Engels write in the German ideology, ideology as the superstructure quite literally growing out of the base. The desired things that we find desirable are shaped and circumscribed by the necessities of capital. And that fundamental change comes out of the, the composition of the crisis in the 1970s. Now, there's crises that happen at other times. Like, for example, Stuart Hall writes about the crisis, the credit debt crisis in 1983 in British context where he says, oh, policing the crisis. What is that? In policing the crisis, he's very specific. He says, there's a black underclass, whatever, black he means broadly as black, specifically the Afro-Caribbeans, but also Asians as well, because there was a different terminology, of course, at that point. And like this population for various ways are racialized in various ways. And the state, in order to stabilize capitalism during moments of crisis exploits that existing those existing animus because they don't the state the crisis isn't as severe to require a fundamental re-altercation recalibration of social relations in 1973 black people move almost more closely to the direction of how indigenous people i'm arguing treated under a settler colonial situation where they're like we got to get them in prison we got to get them out we got to move them into reservations we got to we got to just get rid of them to get, take their land and we do that through forms of, of lots of different ways, but not in the same way that you exploit labor. 1983 in Britain, it's not the same because you're exploiting an existing animus because you're trying to stabilize the system. I would argue the same thing with the Weimar Republic, 1932. That crisis is not that they create new categories of racialization for you know, Roma or, or Jews. They use existing ideas and exploit those existing ideas about Jews and Roma. Similarly to 1989, you have a crisis of, in India in 1989, which is not a severe, it's a credit slash debt slash finance crisis. That isn't a severe crisis. It's a severe crisis insofar as it's broad, but not deep. And that crisis leads directly to the rise of Hindutva, where they exploit existing animus against Muslims. So these different forms of crises have and produce attendant forms of the production difference. I'll end with this one little anecdote. There's lots of different examples I'm looking at, but 1942, and that's why I think production of difference is quite a helpful heuristic or an analytical framework. 1982 or 1942, during the kind of beginning 1943, in the middle of the of World War II, you have lots of the male population in the Anglo-American world, not in Germany, because Germany didn't believe in total war in the same way, because they still believe that women should be 
producing babies at home. But it, across the Anglo-American world, women were replacing male labor. So that was propagandized by the state. Rosie the Riveter, male women, fire women, all of these different, what it meant to be a woman in 1943 was to replace male labor. It wasn't seen as less than, be, wasn't seen as defeminized. It literally was fundamental to what it meant to be a woman in lots of places, especially in the urban, urban context. Fast forward by five years, the war is at, done, men are coming back and they need to produce the next layer of the, of the working class so all of a sudden, what it means to be a woman it means is a social reproducer. Social reproducer. Within the half a decade, the state and capital by extension is able to fundamentally change what it means to be a woman precisely because of two different forms of crisis. One's a labor shortage crisis in the, in the short term, and one's a labor shortage crisis in the medium to long term. And that fundamentally alters what people see as themselves. And that's produced. It's not, it doesn't exist in our minds. It's implanted in our minds, not in some conspiratorial way, but we, in the kind of very real and total subsumption of capital kind of way. Thank you so much. I mean, we've spoken so much about crisis. So, and kind of finishing up the show and bringing it to our modern day now, do you mind in breaking down for some of our listeners what, you know, we're hearing about, okay, cost of living crisis and, you know, the Western capitalist media all too often are calling it Putin's war, Putin's price hike. But I, I mean, many of us will know that that's not the case. So, you know, in so many words, how, what is going on? Why are we having a cost of living crisis today? I think that to go back to the Lukash quote, that capitalism in, in, during crisis reveals the various fissures and totality of capitalism. If you look at it like a crisis, even internally, domestically, if you have a financial crisis, those people that are uh, like, you know, have a little bit of money in the bank, you can, it re it's revealed their suffering and their misery is revealed, whereas they could have hidden it before. And the people who are more middle class, their position, even if they're suffering, is revealed. A crisis means that those people who are near the edge collapse. So Sri Lanka is an example of this, right? Sri Lanka was dealing with the question of like, uh, their primary kind of economic functions or whatever the um, sectors were tourism and remittance, you know, people sending money back. Once tourism collapsed during COVID and the Terrorist Act of 2020, 2020 all of a sudden, once that happened, they started misaligning because everything's traded through dollars, the amount of value that the rupee, Sri Lanka rupee has to the dollar. Once that misalignment happened, all of a sudden people were sending that remittance. are like, we're not going to send it through official channels because the state is manipulating this. So they send it through back channels. So both elements of the state accumulating dollars in order to trade more effectively collapse. Once that collapses and interest rates go up, so their debt financing actually means that they have to pay out more dollars to international financiers. And all of that happens. And then you get the Ukraine war, which means that like, you know, they've made a particular decision. 1976, Sri Lanka becomes the first kind of place in Asia that becomes financialized in that kind of way. They, you know, like 10 acres of tea in, in Sri Lanka gets you 100 acres equivalent of, of grain, of wheat, and the open market. And most of that wheat was coming from Ukraine. Once that collapsed, it, the entire bottom falls out. So they already had an existing crisis, and that crisis becomes accelerated through the conditions of what happens exogenously, right? Take the British example. It isn't the case. Britain has got the worst interest rates in the advanced capitalist world, the worst interest rates, uh, worst um, inflation, rather, not interest rates, worst inflation since 1978. I mean, it's, it's, it's so extraordinary. And they're just like, oh, it's all these exogenous factors. The same amount that they're paying for, the, um, for Ukraine gas and, and other supplies that are uh, coming out of there is the same price all of these advanced capitalist countries are paying for. The reason why... Britain is doing so much worse than, say, Australia, America, Germany, Netherlands, France. It's because we've seen not only the growth rates falling, 
at the worst rates, worse than all of these countries, the worst in the world, uh, worse than the advanced capitalist world, and the G20, only second to Russia. And Russia has a lot of factors for that. But it's precisely because we have a policy, and this is standard kind of neoclassical economics, where they say, the way that you're able to increase growth, increase growth is by accumulating wealth at the top, trickle down, basically. And then they invest. The way that we op optimize those conditions is by depressing wages, and we entice capital by depressing wages. The kind of standard race to the bottom question, they're like, okay, we'll depress wages, we'll cut taxes on the rich, we'll do all of these reforms in order to make this place, entice this place for capital. And the problem with that is that there's no evidence that that's actually occurred. There's no increase in investment, of course. And the second problem with that is that if you live in a society, of course, standard, this isn't a radical argument, standard Keynesian argument. If you live in a society in which a small section of society have an enormous amount of wealth and the vast majority of society don't have a lot of wealth, once a supply-driven, supply-driven inflation, this is what we have right now, we have an exogenous supply-driven inflation problem. It's not an it's not a, a endogenous one. It's not one internally that interest rates are going to change in any way. That's why what the Bank of England is doing right now is completely insane. But because it doesn't do anything, I mean it hasn't done anything. So other than just impoverished, the already impoverished. But once you have that supply crisis, that doesn't mean it's recessionary. That supply crisis means that the existing problems that Britain has are being exploited and pushing it to the edge, right? So that's why you see inflation go as high as it is, because it's the policies that have been decades in the making, really from Thatcher onwards, accelerated by new labor, obviously. But that once you have this exogenous supply-driven inflation, if you start cutting wages already and not meeting those demands, what is a supply crisis becomes a demand, meaning the amount of money people have to spend crisis. That demand crisis is how you become a recessionary problem. That's what becomes totalizing in terms of a recession. So the reason why we have all of these problems is because vast amounts of disinvestment, of course, and pauperization. So you're like cutting wages, cutting benefits, cutting all this stuff to try. Why do, they, why do you think austerity and cutting benefits is so central in this, this very neoclassical or neoliberal model? It's because you cut benefits and more people are forced into the labor market. As more people are forced into the labor market, the reserve army of labor goes higher. Once the reserve army of labor goes higher, even if official unemployment hasn't fallen, fallen official unemployment is bullshit. Because official unemployment is those on full-time jobs, those, on, uh, those who are not seeking extra labor, labor, it doesn't take into account the hollowing out of the labor market. So what you have in Britain is you have no low unemployment only because all the jobs here are shit. So once you've had to hollow it out the labor market, you're like, okay, we hollow it out, we increase profits. But what it doesn't take into account is once you've hollowed out the labor market and wages have collapsed, people aren't spending that money. Capitalists at the upper end of, this, of the market in this country, FTSE 500, the top companies have made 23 to 28% profits in the last two years. If you look at executive pay, it's gone up by 45 to 70% in the last two years. But you see real wages falling in purchasing power parity for the last 40 years. If you look at real wages since 2008, the only country in the advanced capitalist world that has fallen in 2019 to 2008 levels, and you've seen no pay increases, you've seen real-term pay cuts by 78% across the board the last two years. So pay collapsing and, and profits and, and executive pay going up, in the mind of the capitalist, is an indicator of the robustness of the economy. But in fact, it means that it's, it's, it's self-defeating. There's a reason why between 1948 and 1968, in the Anglo-American world, the way that they were able to fight falling asset prices and runaway inflation was by introducing 
the, the top marginal tax rate was 91.7% in 1951 in America, in the belly of the, in the rectum of the beast, under, where capitalism, like it literally spreads its ideology around the world. 92% by 1953. So they take that money from the top. They do direct employment and invest it across the board. This is middle of the road Keynesianism. It's not even that radical. That's why between 1948 and 1968 in Britain, this is after colonialism, it was the most profitable and highest growth era in British and American history ever. And that's precisely because of these policies. It's the crisis in 1973 that neoliberalism emerges out of, which then you see more and more erosion, not only of wages and living standards, but actually the economy in real terms. Thank you so much. That was one of the most in-depth episodes I've done, actually. So thank you so much. I'm going to leave it there. Please, people, buy Ashok's book. I'm going to also leave Ashok's um, social media in the description of the episode. You can check him out on TikTok as well. I've learned so much. I'm definitely going to have to have you on again, man. We'll have to do another yeah, episode. Yeah, anytime, so. bro. Thanks for thank having you, me. Thank you, man. Until next time, peace and blessings.